The following recording is made available without charge from Cantus Firmus. More resources can be found at cantusfirmus.com. That's C-A-N-T-U-S-F-I-R-M-U-S.com. Well, um, good evening to everyone, and uh, welcome to the debate between Cody Cook and Ben Doublet on... Who had a better moral philosophy, Jesus or Ayn Rand? Um, my name is Carl Franco, and Ben and Cody have asked me to moderate this event tonight. Um, just a quick little background on me. I have uh, about 30 years of pastoral experience in more traditional Christian settings, but recently uh, I've launched a new kind of spiritual community that embraces and celebrates the diversity of people's various and unique experiences with God. Um, it's called Zoe Community, uh, and you can find us online at zoecommunity.com. Um, and one of our most significant guiding principles uh, is to foster dialogue. Um, dialogue is true and authentic conversations where people genuinely want to listen to one another, which we don't often see a whole lot of. Um, and really want to understand each other's different perspectives and vantage points and really seek to learn from each other. Uh, ben and Cody hope that tonight's debate will foster some ongoing dialogue around the ideas and values that they'll be sharing. I mean, in the end, that's uh, a lot of what this is about. It's about dialogue. Um, we did ask you to kind of indicate where you might be starting out, and um, and there's a three-way tie between those uh, that are Christ followers, those are dollar followers, uh, and, and those that aren't sure what they're following. But the bottom line is the idea that in any single evening we're going to change massively our ideas about anything uh, is, is you know, kind of ludicrous. But that we can begin to discover and learn and uncover and ponder and reflect and uh, have some new information. That's uh, that's a really cool thing. You know, so often we resist any ideas um, different from the ones we were taught to believe, whatever that is. In most cases, all we typically know about the opposing or differing viewpoints is what someone from our own group has told us about them, which is really kind of silly. Um, it's a clear sign of emotional maturity for someone to be open and curious enough about other people's ideas and beliefs to inquire of them directly and to hear from them why they feel so passionate about their beliefs. And I can tell you that both of these two guys are really passionate about their beliefs. And so you're going to get to hear it directly from them. Uh, ben and Cody hope that everyone will walk away from this evening with greater clarity and understanding about each of their perspectives. Um, so you should have received an itinerary when you came in tonight, um, and you will see on there that there's going to be some opening statements, followed by some rebuttals, cross-examinations, and then conclusions. You'll also notice that there, at the close, there's a time for audience questions, and so I want to just put that uh, bug in your ear right now, that um, you may write out your question, and uh, you don't have to do that just yet, but as you're listening, if a question comes up, you can write out your question on cards, there's some cards should be in there, and um, please be specific as to who you are directing the question to, just in case uh, we're not clear on that. 
um, and then we're going to collect those uh, just before the closing statements um, so that we can select some because we won't have time probably for all of them. Okay, so let's get uh, this started. Um, I'm going to first introduce uh, Ben and uh, tell you a little bit about Ben. Ben attended the University of Cincinnati for a short time before dropping out to work on the small business that he started when he was in high school, which he still owns and operates today. Um, he has studied Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism independently for several years, as well as studying history with a particular focus on classical antiquity and economics. Um, ben will be advocating Ayn Rand's view of ethics, which emphasizes self-interest, rationality, and mutually beneficial relationships. So uh, a little bit about Ayn Rand for those that might not uh, know. Um, she was a Russian-American novelist and philosopher who escaped from Russia shortly after the Communist Revolution. She soon gained fame and success with her novels, uh, We the Living, Anthem, The Fountainhead, and Atlas Shrugged. She developed a unique philosophical system called objectivism that proposed solutions to a wide variety of long-standing issues in every major branch of philosophy, metaphysics, uh, epistemology, ethics, uh, politics, and aesthetics. Although the ideas she proposed were controversial in her time and remain so to this day, objectivism is growing in influence both in the academic world and popular culture. Ayn Rand's work has been cited as a source of inspiration by leaders in business, politics, and film. Some prominent people influenced by Ayn Rand's uh, works include Jimmy Wales, founder of Wikipedia, uh, former VP uh, candidate Paul Ryan, actress Angelina Jolie, and many others. So I'd like to now turn it over to Ben so he can give us his opening statement. Awesome. So thank you everyone so much for coming out. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, thanks very much, Carl, for agreeing to moderate. Thanks, uh, Cody, for inviting me to participate. Uh, thanks to the church for uh, generously allowing us to use your space free of charge. Uh, really appreciate you guys turning out and being willing to hear some ideas. Uh, this is something I've always wanted to do ever since, like, several years ago I started watching these debates. Uh, the guy I loved watching was Christopher Hitchens, didn't agree with him on everything, but I just loved these kind of debates, and I've always wanted to do one, so I'm really happy to get the chance. Um, yeah, so tonight I'll be making the case that Ayn Rand uh, tri uh, articulated a better moral philosophy than uh, the one attributed to Jesus. Uh, but first I'm going to clarify a couple of things. So I'm not claiming to be a representative of Ayn Rand's philosophy. I'm not here representing the Atlas, uh, Atlas Society, the Ayn Rand Institute, or any other objectivist organization. I'm also not claiming that Ayn Rand's ideas were perfect. Uh, I do have a handful of disagreements with her on issues ranging from Native Americans to uh, same-sex relationships, um, gender roles, common opinions amongst uh, other objectivists on issues like climate change, uh, transgender people. I think these are all areas where uh, I kind of buck the trend amongst objectivists. Um, I'm also not a professional philosopher. Uh, this is my first time ever speaking in public about philosophy. Uh, I'm just here as a businessman and a layperson who uh, has independently studied a few topics like uh, Carl said, history, religion, economics, philosophy, and come to some conclusions based on my studies and my experiences, uh, those conclusions being that the ideas articulated by Rand 
are the best ones that I'm familiar with uh, as to how to live our lives and how to make moral choices. Uh, and that includes those ideas that uh, were presented by Jesus in the Gospels. I'm also not going to be making the case that Christianity never improved the world. I think there are tangible examples where it did. Um, I'm not going to be trying to argue that objectivists are always better people than Christians. That's not true. Um, I'm not going to criticize Christianity based on the actions of Christians over the centuries. Um, I'm going to restrict myself exclusively to criti uh, criticizing the ideas articulated by Jesus and their application in the real world. Uh, I don't expect to convince any of you who are devout believers in uh, Jesus' divinity that Jesus was evil. If I do, that's awesome. I'll be really happy. Like, <laughs> way to go me. Um, but, uh, but rather, I'm probably just going to be addressing those of you who, like I used to think, uh, now think that, um, that Jesus, regardless of his divinity, was a great moral teacher. Um, there are many people who accept the scientific account of the origins of the universe uh, and the origins of humanity, who accept that tidal waves and earthquakes are caused by natural forces, not God's wrath, uh, but who still rely on religion as their primary moral goal, uh, guide. I would argue that if the premise of Jesus' divinity is not true, then we need to rethink the ethics that he drew from that premise. I think C.S. Lewis, who objectivists like myself are not normally apt to quote, put this point perfectly when he said, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the, the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. All right, so to give you a brief overview of the rest of my opening statement, first we're going to talk briefly about Ayn Rand's basis for morality, uh, her meta-ethics. Then I'm going to explain in a bit more detail how to apply those ethics, her applied ethics. And then we'll address a few of Jesus' teachings at the end and see how those teachings pan out when they're applied in the real world. So to begin, uh, when Ayn Rand first tried to figure out the nature of good and evil, she went back to the basics. She asked a few fundamental questions. First, she tried to figure out if we even need a moral code. Why do we? Why can't we just do whatever we want when we want? What is morality anyway? Well, morality is a code of values that guides your behavior. That definition encompasses pretty much every moral code that I can think of, right or wrong. My dog, uh, oh, excuse me, skipped ahead a little bit. Uh, okay, so what are values, though? Uh, what needs values? Why? So my dog really values treats. She loves treats. Begging strips, she'll do just about anything for a begging strip. There's a tree in my backyard that's really tall, and you know it grew really tall, so it could take in a lot of sunlight. It grew really long roots, so it could take in a lot of water. The tree values the sunlight and the water. But the begging strip doesn't value anything. The sunlight and the water don't value anything. Only living things have values. And those values have a purpose. They help the living things live. Every living thing 
that we see around us acts in some way to attain values that it needs to survive. That's what it means to be alive. That's what distinguishes the living from the non-living. It's self-generated action. And action is the key point in understanding values. Values are the things that one acts to gain or keep. Well, what about humans? We're like a little bit different from all the other things around us that are alive and pursue values because we act to gain and keep stuff, but a lot of the things we act to gain and keep don't help us survive. A meth addict, for instance, acts to gain more of the drug that is killing him. A pickpocket acts to gain some trinkets at the expense of his integrity and at the potential price of his freedom. What's wrong with us? Well, we have this thing called volition, so we make choices. Uh, and that gives us a few advantages over other animals that operate on instinct, but it also means that we no longer pursue the correct values automatically. Uh, we can choose to go to the gym, to read a book, to do our chores, or we can choose to get stoned and eat cookies all day. Um, the ability to choose gives rise to the need to evaluate our choices and decide whether or not going to the gym is better or worse than getting high and eating cookies. What a moral code does is it gives us something to evaluate our choices by. It tells us whether or not the choices we're making are good or bad. It's our measuring stick. So since a moral code is for determining what values to pursue and what values not, and values are for sustaining our lives, we can safely say that the standard of morality is our lives, your own life. A good car is a car that drives. A good basketball is a basketball that bounces. A good chair supports you when you sit on it. A good morality causes you to live and flourish. Simply put, we need morality to live. And the purpose of morality is to sustain and guide our lives. What your goal as a person should be, according to objectivism, is to live, to live the best most happy, most successful life possible. To flourish, to have an awesome, amazing, productive, fun-filled time for the eight decades or so you get to have here on Earth. If you're lucky, that is. Spend your time with people you love, doing work that you love, and not feeling guilty about doing so. Now, because our own flourishing is our ultimate goal, we have to reject the moral philosophies that tell us the opposite is true. The most widely accepted one of those is altruism. Um, the claim that, that consists of the claim that goodness is sacrificing that which is objectively good for you in order to benefit others or attempt to benefit others. And as a quick side note, I'm talking about philosophical altruism. Altruism, kind of like in common parlance, means uh, just doing something nice for others or helping people out, maybe at a cost to you. Um, that's not what altruism means in philosophy. Altruism in philosophy means actively hurting yourself. So you have to be, it's not enough that you make someone else better off. It, you have to be worse off. But altruism, altruism and egoism, you know, uh, what Ayn Rand advocates for, are not these two fundamental opposites. Rather, altruism is just one of like a list of several different philosophies uh, that say you should give up what's good for you for something else. 
Um, altruism says it's others, uh, but uh, you know, there's lots of other things like hedonism, for example, says that what you should give up what's objectively good for you uh, in exchange for immediate short-term pleasure. Um, nationalism says for your country, environmentalism says for nature. Uh, there's all, you know, you can pull up any, any, any given philosophy and it'll tell you what you should be sacrificing yourself for. Um, and all of these ideologies, insofar as they, they convince people to use their volition to act in a self-destructive way, are evil, according to Ayn Rand. It's not altruism versus egoism. It's self-interest versus self-destruction. And self-destruction of any species for any reason is wrong. Okay, so that's the meta-ethics. That's the basis. Uh, and now that we know that the goal of behaving well is our own flourishing, what exactly does that imply? How do we flourish? How do we fail to flourish? So the important thing we can do, the most important thing to flourish, is to constantly be rational. All other animals have herds or poison or claws or uh, camouflage or some other tool built into themselves that allow them to survive. And they all use that tool. As humans don't have any kind of built-in tool except rationality. Rationality is our primary tool of survival. Aristotle defined man as the rational animal. And so if we want to survive, we have to use that tool. We have to use our rationality, our reason, to provide for our material needs. This means being productive. If you were living alone on, this, on like a little island, you'd have to spend your time building a shelter and catching food and uh, acquiring the basics for yourself. But fortunately for all of you, I presume, I don't see any, uh, yeah, no, no, no uh, islanders or hermits here. Um, <laughs> so fortunately for all of you, you live in a society where you can just focus on performing one particular task and getting paid for that and then trading the money that you get paid for uh, the things that you need, like your food and shelter and all that kind of good stuff. We also have to use our reason to face reality, face facts, and not pretend that facts are of something other than what they are. Um, that's primarily, primarily something focused on self, uh, but it also you know, is, has something to do with the way we treat others. You can't evade facts for yourself, but you also can't try to make other people think facts are different from what they are. This is the virtue of honesty. We have to use our reason to select good principles to live by. But then, once we've selected them, we actually have to stick to those principles. You can believe all the right things, but if you don't act in accordance with your beliefs, then your beliefs won't do you any good. Acting in accordance with your beliefs is integrity. We have to follow our own reason, your reason. Not like bucket off the responsibility of reasoning to someone else. We each benefit tremendously from living in a society with other people, not just economically, but friendship, companionship, culture. Uh, but you can't abdicate your responsibility to think to those other people. You have to remain an independent thinker. We also have to use our reason to determine how to treat others. We have to judge the people around us and then treat them in accordance with our judgments of them. This is what it means to be just to treat people the way they deserve. 
It's great to be like friendly and kind and sympathetic and all these other good things. But the most important thing to do in relation to others is to practice the virtue of justice. Now, practicing these virtues, rationality, independence, honesty, justice, integrity, productiveness, is what Ayn Rand believed is the most effective way to survive and flourish. It's the most effective way to be a moral person. Now, Ayn Rand also had some uh, unique ideas about how our interactions with other people should go. Since self-destructive actions are bad, we shouldn't want to have relationships with people where one of us is self-destructing. You know, we should want, uh, you know, we've all known couples that are in uneven relationships where one partner is always sacrificing and giving in and the other partner is always getting their way. Looking at you two right here. <laughs> um, uh, but those, those relationships are really, really unhappy. Like, you know, we don't see people in those kind of relationships that are happy and loving. Like you see the, the quote-unquote winner losing respect for the quote-unquote loser, and the loser, um, you know, resenting the winner. So since we should be striving for our own well-being, we should want relationships that make both parties better off. Relationships should be built on this premise of win-win. That's the single most important aspect of Rand's ethical philosophy. If you take one thing away from this debate, it should be that. Every proper relationship should benefit both parties, or all parties. This is something Ayn Rand called the trader principle. That's trade as in swap, not trade as in betray. Um, uh, and it applies to every category of relationship. From the person you buy a couch off of on Craigslist to the person you marry and have children with, it's as broad, all-encompassing proposition or principle that you apply to every single interaction you have. In business, friendship, romance, your life should be better off as a result of having the people in it in it, and they should be better off as a result of having you in their lives. Isn't that cool? Like, like everyone's better off. Now, to illustrate this point, it might be worth thinking about what a marriage based on altruism would look like. So how many people in here are married? Everyone raise your hand, married, about to be married, yeah. All right, cool, so you guys, uh, keep your hands up for a second. Um, honey, like now imagine saying this to your spouse. <clears throat> honey. Being with you is a tremendous sacrifice to me. I get literally nothing out of our relationship, but I endure the hardship of spending time with you solely for your benefit. Now, I know that you are made much better off by this relationship. That's why I put up with you. But, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, my life would be so much better off without you. All right, now keep your hand up if you think that's a really romantic thing to say to your partner. Yeah, didn't, didn't think so. <laughs> but like, if you accept altruism, if you accept the, the proposition that love should be selfless, that a good person is someone who, who serves others at a loss to himself or herself, then you have to accept that as your perfect definition of love. <clears throat> Time? Cool. Uh, all right, so let's uh, turn to Jesus' ethical teachings. 60, thank you. Um, so uh, and, uh, let's look at the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gives his most important ethical uh, 
lessons. Uh, some of these, I think, are pretty destructive if we actually try to apply them in real life. So, for instance, Jesus uh, argues that one should not store up for yourself, quote, not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. So this is an injunction against practicing the virtue of productiveness that we talked about before. There should be no limit to how comfortable or enjoyable one strives to make one's own life. There's certainly a limit to you know, what you should do in order to attain that goal. You shouldn't you know, pursue wealth using any kind of immoral means, deception, fraud, uh, you know, theft, force. Um, but like if you're producing wealth honestly, um, if you're doing uh, what Carl and, uh, and his lovely wife do, where they you know, run a successful business, uh, then you know, how could that be dishonest? How could that be bad? Uh, Excuse me. Yeah, if you can pursue wealth using moral means, what earthly reason could there be for not doing so? So was Steve Jobs immoral for becoming wealthy? What about Sam Walton, Andrew Carnegie, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Steve Forbes, Thomas Edison? You know, these men might have been immoral for some other reasons, but certainly not the, you know, enduring, brilliant companies they built that enriched all of our lives and made them extremely wealthy. There's no earthly reason why becoming wealthy could be wrong. That's why Jesus has to invoke a heavenly reason for it to be wrong. He claims that you should not strive for wealth because it will distract you from serving God. That you cannot serve, quote, two masters at one time. But money is not a master. It is a servant. Having wealth is good not because it controls you, but because you control it. It allows you to control your own life, to see more of the world, to pursue the things that you love, to educate your children, to take leisure time, to live that awesome, fun-filled, beautiful life that we talked about before, that you're morally supposed to pursue. Now, this injunction against seeking wealth is something that has seeped into like every aspect of our society. You can see it in Hollywood's portrayal of business people as villains, you can see it in the politicians, crude caricature of corporate, evil corporate overlords that need to be reined in, if you'd only just vote for me. <laughs> uh, you can even see it in like the behavior of, and the justifications of petty criminals who, you know, uh, justify everything from video piracy to insurance fraud to shoplifting by reference to the wealth and greed of their victims. So moving on to another teaching, uh, less widely accepted but still very destructive ethical lesson of Jesus is the exhortation not to plan for the future. Uh, continue, continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans ran after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But first seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So this is the exact opposite of what Rand taught. Uh, she emphasized over and over again the importance of thinking and planning long range. Uh, and you know the reason why we even have a civilization that allows us to sit here and have this debate 
is the fact that people do plan long range, is the fact that we develop technologies, that we produce and store surpluses of food, that we give up consumption in the short term in order to have greater consumption in the long term. Thinking about tomorrow instead of today. Now, in your own life, you need to save for retirement. Otherwise, you'll be miserable in your old age. You need an education in your youth. Otherwise, you'll have... You won't have a job when you're an adult. Thinking long range is critical to your survival and flourishing. Following Jesus' advice on this point would destroy your life and your happiness. <clears throat> now Jesus went on to comment on the practice of judging others. Quote, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now I've tried to avoid quoting Rand uh, so far, um, since I, you know, like to try to put things in my own words, and her rhetoric can be just a little harsh sometimes. Um, but here's her response to this, and I think it's just too beautiful uh, and eloquent to paraphrase. Quote, <clears throat> One must never fail to pronounce moral judgment. Nothing can corrupt and disintegrate a culture or a man's character as thoroughly as does the precept of moral agnosticism. The idea that one must never pass moral judgment on others, that one must be morally tolerant of anything, that the good consists of never distinguishing good from evil. It is obvious who profits and who loses by such a precept. It is not justice nor equal treatment that you grant to men when you abstain equally from praising men's virtues and condemning men's vices. When your impartial attitude declares, in effect, that neither the good nor the evil may expect anything from you. Whom do you betray and whom do you encourage? Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Ben. Um, so Cody's gonna come up here next. Cody is a theology student part-time and also works full-time in IT. His theological focus is on apologetics or defending the Christian faith by demonstrating its reasonableness. And his work can be read and heard at uh, www.cantus-firmus.com. Um, and he will be defending uh, the view that Jesus' vision of ethics, which is that morality is primarily a relational issue grounded on the nature and existence of God, is a superior moral system. Um, Cody didn't send me a, uh, a bio on Jesus, uh, so I just threw a quick one together. Uh, so just a few words on Jesus uh, since we introduced Ayn Rand. Um, his teachings are the basis for 2.2 billion people worldwide, or about 34% of the world's population. If you add those who follow the Islamic faith, since they believe Jesus to be a prophet and a great moral teacher, that brings his worldwide following to 3.8 billion people, or almost 57% of the world's population that affirm his teachings. A pretty impressive bio. Unfortunately, many who profess to believe in him often don't really live out his teachings. Uh, and much has been done in the name of Jesus and Christianity that I'm certain Jesus has probably wept over. Anyway, just a little quick bio on Jesus Christ, and Cody's gonna come up and uh, share with us his opening statements. 
Um, actually, on the point of Jesus' bio, I, I forgot to send that, but I did send, uh, when Ben and I were discussing that, I said, uh, can I say for Jesus' bio that Jesus was the Son of God and you are morally obligated to believe what he says? All right, so um, the topic of debate today is over whose moral view is correct, Jesus's or Ayn Rand's. I'm at a serious disadvantage here tonight because unlike my opponent, I don't have a British accent. So what I'm going to say is necessarily going to sound less thoughtful and persuasive. Um, I want to say from the outset that Ayn Rand's uh, moral philosophy is primarily remembered um, for being associated with libertarian political philosophy. Um, and I'm not here to debate politics. I'm perfectly willing to concede for the purposes of this debate that libertarian uh, uh, political philosophy could be perfectly you know, consistent with Christian ethics. Um, so my main concerns are the underlying values in both systems, uh, how they're lived out in their proponents' personal lives, at least consistently, and the logical consistency of both views. So that's what my opening statement is going to focus on. Um, to begin, I actually um, want to start by naming a few moral intuitions that I think that nearly all humans share. Uh, first of all, we intuitively believe that morality is objective, meaning that there are true answers to moral questions. You know, so for example, is murder wrong? Yes. And you know, if you don't think it's wrong, then you're wrong. <laughs> uh, the second intuition is that human life is inherently valuable, all human life inherently valuable. The third moral intuition that I think most of us tend to share is that we have an obligation to treat others as just as valuable as we are because they are. So I hope to show that Jesus' model not only satisfies these basic moral intuitions while Rand's doesn't, uh, but that it also calls us to something more profound. Um, to begin, I want to start by discussing Rand's view. In her jarringly titled book, uh, The Virtue of Selfishness, Ayn Rand tells us, quote, in popular usage, the word selfishness is a synonym of evil. Yet the exact meaning and dictionary definition of the word selfishness is concern with one's own interests. For Rand, the individual, the me, is primary. And other people, the collective, have value only to the extent that they serve my interests. This is because, as Rand argues, the only objects that can value are living ones. And the one thing that life values is its own life. So all value is predicated on living creatures making rational choices to extend or enrich their own lives. The philo this philosophy is one she calls objectivism. Uh, the philosophy based on self-interest may sound pretty ghastly. Uh, Rand tells us quite emphatically that it isn't. Um, because we live in a society and must cooperate with others in order to get our needs met, uh, Rand is confident that a morality of self-interest, if applied rationally, will ultimately still benefit others. After all, what man will benefit from exploiting others when he requires their cooperation to survive? Besides the majority of tyrants, successful crooked CEOs, and uh, undetected serial killers throughout history, I mean. However, it must be uh, stressed that the benefit to others in objectivist morality is a byproduct, not a prime product. Other people's quality of life doesn't matter because they have objective value, but because when we scratch their backs, they'll scratch ours. Putting it bluntly, Objectivism is sociopathy masquerading as a moral system. However, it's also the best moral system that atheism can afford us for whatever that's worth. That being said, I still think that most objectivists can live an ethical life very similar, at least on the surface, to the one a Christian might live, um, or ideally would live. This is because Christian morality is supremely rational. Um, lost myself. It's supremely rational and does in fact benefit the individual following it, as well as others. Thus, a rational, emotionally well-adjusted objectivist can still be a good neighbor and a good friend, providing he values your happiness. 
Um, and as a human, made, a human being made in the image of God, he may even value you uh, as an intrinsic good on your own, as opposed to just an instrumental value for what he can get out of you. Even if he can't make sense of that being intrinsically valuable, of you being intrinsically valuable in his own system. Um, apart from the fact that objectivism dehumanizes and devalues others, there are other major issues with Rand's philosophy, and I'd like to point out two. The first is that her moral vision excludes moral duties, which are the central concern of any moral philosophy. At first glance, Rand seems to argue that since the primary thing a living creature does value is their life, that must be the one thing they're obligated to value. This is referred to as squeezing an ought out of an is, and it's nonsensical. It would be like saying, since Michael Bay does make horrible movies, he should make horrible movies. But to Rand's credit, she recognizes how ridiculous that would be. So, I feel like just Michael Bay. It's no good. Yes, says, says the capitalist. So, so, she, uh, so Rand makes uh, an, an interesting modification to this uh, you know, issue. So instead of objectivist morality being an obligation to act in ways that benefit yourself, it's instead an obligation to act in ways that benefit yourself if you want to benefit yourself. Notice the difference? So like, according to Rand, um, quote, the formula of realistic necessity is you must if, and the if stands for man's choice, man's choice, if you want to achieve a certain goal, end quote. Um, so when that goal um, is self-interest, Rand arbitrarily calls this morality. Um, in other words, there are no genuine obligations in objectivism, making it a parody of a moral system. Uh, the second major issue is that objectivism only works if humans have free will. Rand rightly points out that there can be no moral actions if we aren't capable of making free choices. However, this presents a problem for objectivism, since it is atheistic and denies that anything non-physical exists. So you know, if humans are simply matter, and all matter is held together by ironclad laws with every event occurring required by its previous event, it's predictable, it's, you know, um, then uh, even the particles in our brains would be following these laws, and we're incapable of making free choices as a result. So the traditional objectivist response to this is, and I've, 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 I swear I've looked for better responses. <laughs> I've read uh, Rand and Binswinger, and, and anyway. So, but the traditional response is that basically, um, you know, well, we clearly do make free choices, and clearly God doesn't exist. So obviously, most something they both must be true. But you know, that clearly doesn't follow. If we have free will, and atheism can't ground free will, then atheism must be wrong. But the objectivist is absolutely wedded to atheism, so you know that's that can't be. So that's Ayn Rand. In contrast, we have Jesus Christ. For Christ, the individual and the communal are reciprocal. There can be no individual without the communal, and no community without the individual. When Christ was asked by a seeker what the greatest commandments of God were, he responded, love the Lord your God with all that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you notice, those commands are predicated on otherness. So you know, having a healthy love for self is also implied there. Um, but morality is primarily defined as choices we make in relation to others. But why are others so important? Well, for one, because reality is essentially cooperative, in contrast to what Rand says. You know, solar systems bring planets into harmony. Atoms join together to create molecules. And at the root of all reality is a Trinitarian God. God consists of three persons who could not exist without each other. Um, if they did, oh, sorry, if they cease to exist in divine love, and that's a it couldn't happen. If they, if they cease to exist in divine love, they would cease to exist at all. Jesus models this love for us, uh, since even though he is God, 
Uh, he joined himself to the human community, experienced human limitations, and died an ignoble death out of love for the persons he created. While Christianity sees persons as communitarian, it must be remembered that there is no community without the individual. The Methodist theologian Dennis Kinlaw, uh, seizing on the teaching of Pope John Paul II, tells us, quote, individuals cannot give away their selves in self-giving love if they are not, first of all, in possession of their own selves. In other words, community is a meaningless concept if there are not individual persons. Christian love is about finding unity in our diversity, a diversity that glorifies God and reflects his communal nature. So contrary to what Rand said, Christianity does not teach some form of collectivism where the individuals of no account, but instead teaches that we are discrete individuals who yet require each other for our existence. A person is indeed a, a distinct center of consciousness, but without other persons, a person is nothing at all. This is because we depend upon each other and um, because all of us are community-oriented since we're made in the image of God. There's not some dilemma between individualism and collectivism, as Rand argues, but humans are simultaneously individualistic and communitarian in our essential natures. In Christ's view, every human being is valuable, and we're also obligated to show love to each other, to others and to treat them with respect. Um, this actually even applies to enemies, as Jesus tells us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Let me catch up where I was here, sorry. Um, in other words, we're to model God's love, and God extends good things to sinners as well as saints. While Jesus does speak of reward as a motivation for doing good at times, uh, here the only reason he gives for loving one's enemies is the motivation to be like God, who is gracious to all. Jesus goes even further in Matthew 25, telling his followers that when they care for the poor, the lowly, and the outcasts in society, they're caring for him. This is a perfect metaphor uh, since Jesus, as God Almighty, took on flesh, humbled himself, and died a death reserved in that time for undesirables and slaves. However, it stands in contradiction to Rand, who tells us that love is simply a form of admiration, and we can't admire the lowly, only the proud. After demanding that we love our enemies, Jesus then attacks the very root of what would become Ayn Rand's philosophy. Quote, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And that really gets at the objectivist, doesn't it? Um, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the pagans, do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're told here to model God's love, not necessarily because we'll get something out of it, but because pure morality is concerned with loving others, even if they're undeserving, even if we can't get anything out of them. This kind of morality is the root of the gospel message, that when we didn't deserve it, God joined himself to humanity and died for our sins so that we could be raised up with him. At this point, I want to partially agree with Ayn Rand's claims about Christianity. It is undoubtedly a faith that esteems self-sacrifice. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus even refers to following him as self-denial and, quote, taking up the cross. However, this isn't sacrifice for its own sake, but sacrifice for a purpose. Let's look at one example of Christian self-denial that our culture tends to criticize as outdated or even backwards. Not sleeping around might seem like a sacrifice in the heat of passion, but Jesus' command to treat sexuality as sacred and in the context of commitment is not just moral, but it's rationally self-interested. When you're treating a sexually transmitted disease or you find yourself pregnant from a man that isn't committed to you or when your emotional attachment to someone was expedited because you, were, you allowed sexual intimacy before you had genuine commitment, it'd be hard to imagine not wishing you could take back that choice and blaming yourself for letting short-term emotions instead of reason control your behavior. 
and in fact, actually, we, I think originally when we were talking, you had something, some, a sort of a similar example in your opening statement for objectivism, somewhat similar. Yeah. So we're not totally off base here. Um, so and, and, and another example, another command of Jesus that's difficult um, and so often not followed, even by professing Christians, is the command to forgive. Um, it's often viewed as irrational because forgiveness is thought of as pretending a hurt caused by another never really happened and therefore allowing them to harm you again. Um, but that isn't the case. Forgiveness is the attitude of loving those who've harmed you, even though you know that they have done you wrong. It's continuing to desire what's best for them instead of choosing to maintain a vindictive spirit that destroys you inside and damages your ability to move forward in life. Further, uh, Jesus' view allows for humans to be noble because it encourages us to be self-giving. This is partly because uh, Jesus believes in an eternal life for those who follow him. So, you know, Ren's view is petty and exacting, precisely, precisely because she takes the opposite view. For Rand, this short life is all we've got, and we shouldn't waste our time being concerned about others. Self-giving love, love that isn't calculating, only makes sense in Christ's vision of reality. Um, Christ is asking that you change what you inherently value. That, that's another important point. So instead of uh, only loving people who can give you something, also love people who can't since they're just as valuable to God as you are. And this is a difficult shift for humans to make, but it isn't the case that it's not rewarding. And indeed, uh, Jesus claims that following him is the most rewarding thing a person can do. So um, Ayn Rand's, um, let me see here. Is that, okay. Ayn Rand's categorization of every non-selfish moral view um, as being altruistic, which she defines as having a complete non-concern or even antipathy for yourself and your happiness, is plainly false. Jesus never describes morality in this way. He never asserts that you can't enjoy what you're doing in order for it to be good. Instead, he urges his followers to develop a taste for doing what's right and seek to find their happiness in God. Jesus tells us in Matthew 13, for example, that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man found hidden in a field, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. According to the author of the biblical book of Hebrews, even Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, though he despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God as a result. When the Apostle Paul thought about everything he'd given up to become a Christian, he very nearly invokes Ayn Rand's principle of uh, value as that for which one acts to gain when he wrote, quote, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Wow, almost thou persuadest me to be an objectivist, Paul. A contemporary Reformed pastor and theologian, John Piper, reflecting on biblical exhortations to do good, even coined the phrase Christian hedonism to describe a person uh, who finds their greatest joy in magnifying God and enjoying him. Indeed, what is idolatry if not making your primary focus anything that can't deliver the greatest good? That being said, the fact that Christianity values self-sacrifice doesn't mean that Christian morality forbids being concerned with your own needs. As Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, quote, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, end quote. Notice that Paul didn't say to only look after the interests of others and not your own. That would be Ayn Rand's false straw man representation of Christian morality. He said to also look after the interests of others. And it would be the responsibility of the individual Christian guided by God's spirit to determine how he can best serve others while also tending to his private concerns. Um, setting aside the vast differences between these moral visions that I think I've hopefully untangled, it's important to reflect on how they both are grounded. In Christianity, we're valuable because the supreme mind behind the universe created us and that in his own image and intended us for community with him. This allows reality, existence, life, and even human persons to have inherent value regardless of anyone's opinion. Ayn Rand's moral vision, however, is essentially atheistic. 
We are valuable because we wound up with minds that tell us that we are. Um, she somehow manages to argue with a straight face that this can be called objectivism, even though it's based on the subjective opinions of bits of matter that came into existence unintentionally and purposelessly. So setting aside whether you like Christian ethics or objectivist ethics more, if you had to choose between the two for, um, as an, for one to be an objective moral framework, it would have to be Christianity because objectivism simply disqualifies itself as being objective. To summarize, the consistent objectivist may still make choices that benefit others, but only in calculated, self-interested way. In contrast, the Christian morality is um, primarily concerned with our relationships with others, and uh, this results in the person who is a new creation in Christ finding supreme joy in showing genuine love to God and to other human beings made in his image, even if there are enemies. As a result, Christianity is also more compatible with basic universal ethical intuitions. Uh, it's also internally coherent. Objectivism fails to achieve either of these. Finally, Christianity succeeds in grounding itself as an objective moral vision since it provides humans with genuine moral obligations and is rooted in the personality and will of the eternal creator. On the other hand, objectivism fails to live up to its name. Its standard of morality, the desires of living matter, is utterly subjective and arbitrary. Thank you. shorter than Cody, but I didn't realize I was that much shorter. <laughs> um, yeah, cool. So uh, uh, excellent job, Cody. Uh, great, uh, great opening statements there. I actually read his before uh, um, we started. We exchanged these uh, so that we'd have prepared uh, rebuttals as well. And then uh, after this, we're going to get into the cross-examination, which we don't have uh, uh, prepared ahead of time. Um, yeah, and also, um, although my British accent is fading. I, uh, I think Cody made up for the uh, advantage it, uh, small advantage it gave me with his PowerPoint slides. <laughs> uh, so uh, to begin with, objectivists don't, as Cody claims in his opening statement, value others in this cold, calculating, mercenary way. Rather, we value others uh, for their deepest nature, for their character, for their virtue. That's you know, what we're concerned with when we make judgments, the deepest facts about a person. I value Cody and his friendship because of his you know, integrity, his sense of humor, his insight, his intelligence, his rationality, you know, even despite our different worldviews. Like that's you know, the things that we share. That's the core of him that, I, that makes us really good friends. Now, the Christian, on the other hand, you know, although they actually do this in real life, they value people in real life the, way, the same way objectivists do. Uh, in accordance with what Jesus said the, the Christian should do, uh, they should ignore those facts, as Cody himself admits in his opening statement. Uh, for, because the value of others for the Christian is not based on that individual's virtue and character, on those deep, deeply ingrained traits. It's based on God's love for them. So the Christian has to take this weird, perverse, egalitarian approach to people and not judge them for their good qualities or their bad qualities, but rather believe that any crook or cheat or pedophile is of equal value to their closest friends or their most admired heroes. 
Think about that for a second. How weird is that? How weird is that as a, of a way to approach others, a, a way to approach evaluating people? Now, Cody argues that moral systems require moral duties. That's not the case. Morality requires virtue, practicing virtue, ingraining it into your character, not duty. As I said in my opening statement, morality has a purpose. It's something that we need in order to live. It's not free-floating commandments out there ingrained somewhere in the nature of reality that you should do X or you should not do Y. It's virtues that we must strive to ingrain in us and become second nature. So that, for example, honesty, the idea of telling a lie, this is one that I've you know, really worked on myself and you know, still struggle with, but like I really, really try, and I've really been trying to do this lately. Like Making that a habit, making that a really powerful, really deeply ingrained thing so that you know, it's almost repulsive for yourself to tell even like, little day-to-day -day lies. Now, Cody also argues that morality requires free will, which I agree with, uh, but he claims that atheism and free will are incompatible. Then that's not true. Now, free will is entirely outside the realm of what we're here to debate. You know, philosophy breaks down into five, maybe six uh, different um, uh, uh, areas. Uh, metaphysics, epistemology, kind of like this weird thing between epistemology and metaphysics called action theory, uh, ethics, politics, and aesthetics. Um, and free will belongs like either in metaphysics, epistemology, or action theory, uh, n but definitely not in ethics. Um, I'll say a couple things on the topic, and then we'll kind of put it to the side for the rest of it. So free will is, the argument that free will is incompatible with atheism is kind of based on this uh, Newtonian argument that physicists, that, you know, uses physics to make its argument, but physicists widely reject it uh, since the days of Heisenberg. Now that's Heisenberg, the... Um, uh, the uh, physicist, not the meth cook. <laughs> um, Einstein did have a theory of free will. Uh, you can find it in uh, Harry Binswang's book, uh, Volition is Cognitive Self-Regulation, if you're interested. So feel free to read up on that. Uh, and it's actually theism that's more incompatible with free will than atheism. Um, you know, I either will or will not raise my right hand in like 10, 15 seconds. If I do raise my right hand, and God either, if he does exist, uh, either knows that I will raise my right hand in 10, 15 seconds, or knows that I will not, um, because he is uh, omniscient, supposedly. But if I choose not to raise my right hand, and God thinks I will, then God is wrong and can't be omniscient. If I raise my right hand and God you know, knows that I will ahead of time, I haven't really made a choice. My choice was known before I made it. That's the exact opposite of, uh, of free will. Now, you can kind of get around that a little bit by saying God exists outside of time, and, uh, but that presents problems of its own because then if you exist out of time, then you can't take action because time requires causality, or action requires causality. Um, but let's, so let's put that bit aside for a sec and just focus on the fact that Christianity is based on prophecy. You can't do prophecy in anything other than a deterministic universe. You can't say, this is going to happen in you know, however much time if your actions aren't predetermined. You wouldn't know what would happen in the future. And you know, in this reality, you wouldn't be able to enter into this reality, say you're all going to choose to do this type of thing, and then you know, it won't happen, and, and it will happen. Uh, like That doesn't work if we can make choices and choose not to do X and not to do Y. 
<laughs> had to do it. Um, cool, so uh, Cody goes on to make a point about lifelong monogamy. And it's certainly true that lifelong monogamy and hell, even chastity could be preferable to contracting AIDS. Um, but that doesn't mean that lifelong monogamy or chastity <laughs> is the best policy. Uh, it's just they kind of work better than some other policies. Those are two really different things. Best policy, not the worst policy. Um, all primitive moral codes have some aspects of good, some little nugget in there of good stuff. Uh, otherwise, no one would follow them. And that way, they're sort of like folk remedies. They have a little bit of the active ingredient, but a whole bunch of other stuff mixed in. A rational morality, in that case, if we're going to continue the metaphor, is like modern medicine, where we look, using reason, at the, at the thing and isolate the active ingredient and then get rid of all the junk and then accentuate that active ingredient. So sex, you know, we don't, we're not promiscuous. Yeah, that can be bad. Uh, we don't have unprotected sex. That's bad. Um, or, you know, we do, but whatever. <laughs> um, uh, but we don't necessarily have to accept lifelong monogamy as the only alternative. Rather, objectivism says that you should have lots of sex with people that you value, uh, partners that you actually have feelings for. You know, there's a middle ground there that, you know, you get both good things. Um, you know, and it's also worth mentioning that Christians who try to practice abstinence often end up in a much worse position than their promiscuous peers. Like, Christian kids are notorious for jumping into marriage way too soon because they want to jump into the sack with their boyfriend or girlfriend. <laughs> like, duh. I mean, who wouldn't? And they also want to, you know, avoid the eternal hellfire. Um, so, you know, get married when you're a teenager, when you're, you know, in your early 20s, whatever. But, like, rushing into marriage is way, way worse than rushing into sex. Like, that is entirely way, way worse. All right, so moving on. Let's talk about something a bit more serious. Uh, Jesus' commandment to forgive everyone for every wrong they've caused you. That's another example of the folk remedy morality. Most people by nature, granted, uh, hold on to grudges too much uh, over grievances that are too small. A blanket commandment to forgive everything, um, you know, is a remedy to that. It works, but it also carries problems of its own. So I'm going to tell a story about, um, about a really good friend of mine. I'm going to use a different name for her. Her name's uh, Sarah. I'll borrow two minutes from my uh, conclusion, if you don't mind. Uh, her name's, you know, we'll use the name Sarah. Um, now, Sarah had uh, uh, grew up in a Christian household, and she... Um, uh, was abused sexually at a young age by uh, an older brother. Uh, continually, regularly, uh, from an extremely sickeningly young age. And her parents found out, or her mother found out, and uh, sent the older brother away to get help. Eventually the older brother was brought back home, and the abuse continued. Um, the uh, uh, to this day, the family, who are all, otherwise, except for her, devout Christians, still invite this person, this pedophile, this disgusting, horrible, despicable, incestuous pedophile, to their family functions, to family weddings. Imagine that. Imagine, like, going to your 
brother's wedding and seeing the person who had raped you when you were a child who wasn't even in school yet. Like, how sickening is that? How could we call something that demands that you do that morality? That's not morality. That's not good. That's not goodness. That's something. That's, that's wicked. That's evil. That's evil if there is such a thing. So, you know, forgive. Yeah, sure, forgive the, the dude who cut you off in traffic. Forgive, you know, little, little things here and there. Like, don't hold on to every grudge. But, but don't, don't forgive things like that. Don't forgive everything. You know, justice. Justice is a good thing, not forgiveness. <clears throat> Moving on. So Cody claims that sacrificing other, for others is ultimately beneficial to you because it makes you feel good. Like that's what Jesus says. And that's somehow in line with what Ayn Rand believe. But those are really, really different things. Ayn Rand never claimed you should do what feels good. She said you should do what's good for you. The, you know, feels good, good for you. Two different things. You know, in Luke 21, Jesus sees a widow donating her last two pennies to charity and says that the widow is morally better than the men who donated much larger sums to charity uh, out of their even larger fortunes because the widow is giving up everything she has. Uh, whereas the rich man, you know, you guys still have stuff. That's, you're not good. Now, but the widow really needed her money. Like, you know, she's broke in ancient Judea or where, uh, Judea? Yeah, ancient Judea. <laughs> Sorry, like that. Being broke today sucks. Imagine being broke back then, when like you would go sell yourself into slavery if you went broke. Like that's that's bad. Now, and it doesn't matter if she felt the warm fuzzies for giving her money away. It was objectively bad for her to throw the money away. Like this is why Christian hedonism, that term could have used, is the perfect name for giving up things you need in exchange for feeling good about yourself, feeling like you're just the best person around. I'm, so, I'm such a good guy for giving away all the things that I need. You know, it's true hedonism, pure hedonism, sacrificing long-term self-interest for immediate short-term pleasure, exactly what I defined before. Taking the joy, taking joy out of giving up the things that you need, that you require for your flourishing, is no different in principle from enjoying the rush of pulling off a scam or enjoying the endorphins that are released when you inject heroin into your veins. It's a form of self-destruction. And self-destruction, as I said before, of any species for any reason is wrong. Now, the widow's might story also kind of proves that Rand did not strawman Christian ethics. She understood it very well. It's Cody that doesn't understand the criticism here. It's true that you might get something. Like, every bad thing that you do is motivated by some desire. Uh, Christianity wouldn't have last, uh, lasted so long if you didn't get something out of doing the ethical things that it exhorts you to do. But the big difference is between what feels good and what's good for you. Your life has objective requirements that you need to fulfill, and Christianity does not recognize those requirements. Objectivism does. Ayn Rand urged you to do what is good for you over what feels good. To spend your life working passionately, productively, in a career that you love. To spend time with people that deserve to be with you, who you love as well. And 
judge your, judge and different, distance yourself from the people who don't deserve to be around you. That's what it means to be a good person. That's what it means to lead a good life. Thank you very much. Start my own timer too, just so I can kind of watch it myself. <laughs> okay. Whoa. Uh, ben, B., I noticed, uh, began his opening statement by calling the church generous for agreeing to host the debate. Does that mean the church is being immoral, or are, are you encouraging a non-reciprocal relationship? Generosity is a moral amplifier. All right then. Um, also, yeah, I would just say, just really quickly, you know, Ben undersold himself. You know, he might not be representing an official objectivist organization, but he's an intelligent man and a skillful debater, a worthy opponent, and a good friend. So, um, I also appreciate that uh, Ben is focusing on the teachings of Jesus as opposed to how people claiming to follow him have uh, represented him in the last couple thousand years. Um, that's an unfortunate red herring technique that I think a, a lot of atheist debaters pull, and it's a testament to Ben being a classy, sophisticated guy that he's not doing that. Um, ben referred to a moral code as giving us something to evaluate our choices by in order to determine if they are good or bad choices. He then makes the jump that, quote, I think he said something like, we can safely say that the standard of morality is your own life. But why make this jump? Um, Rand does, I guess. Maybe that's why. I mean, Rand claims that the only meaningful standard for morality is my self-interest. But the atheist uh, Sam Harris in his book, The Moral Landscape, claims that human flourishing is the only meaningful standard. And by this, he means all humans, not just the selfish individual, which means we must take everyone's quality of life into consideration. And Freud cited the pleasure principle as our driving force and our central value. A sociopath might claim that the primary value is inflicting pain on others. Who, who can arbitrate among these views? They're all atheistic. And they all claim, as the primary value, uh, what ended up being mutually exclusive standards of morality. The trouble is that they all beg the question, and they simply uh, assume what they think is valuable should be the only meaningful value. Uh, in contrast, the Christian moral vision begins with a God who is Trinity, um, has love as his very nature, and he creates a universe in which love is also the primary value. God desires for us to be individuals brought together as one in order to reflect his image. He also obligates us to behave in such a way as to seek this value. Outside of this divine command, reflecting a divine intention, which in turn reflects the divine nature, all value becomes subjective. Ben claimed that when there's a loser in a two-party relationship, that's bad for both parties. So you should avoid taking advantage of others lest you be hurt. Though I agree that malicious people often get theirs in this life, it's, it, I don't think it's a hard and fast rule that they do. And I think that probably every here, everyone here can think of examples of that, of that being the case. So in discussions that I've had with objectivists, I noticed that most of them will refuse to acknowledge that a person can ever harm someone and truly end up benefiting from it. And this denial is imperative for their position because if even one example can be provided of harming others and truly benefiting from it in this life, they have to admit that what they're espousing is the morality of the sociopath. When I press them in these conversations, I'll sometimes get, you know, um, get them get the admission, okay, well, yeah, sure, 0.1% of the time, maybe, people can harm others and truly benefit from it. But that's all you need, you know. In these rare occurrences, does this behavior then become moral? Now, what's the answer I get? Yes, it's moral. I don't know if Ben would answer it that way, so I'll ask him during the cross-examination and see. 
Um, but even if this never happened in, in, in reality, it's at least possible in theory. And objectivism doesn't give a meaningful rebuke to those harming others outside of the, the harm it might bring to, it bring to you. And, and I certainly agree that morality is not mutually exclusive to self-interest and is in fact consistent with it. But for the aforementioned reasons, I, I can't make self-interest the sole arbiter or the sole standard for moral behavior. Um, ben also implies that Christianity is altruistic, uh, which he sort of defined as, um, you know, in every relationship, the moral, the moral man must be a loser. He gave an example of a marriage where the husband claims that being with his wife is a tremendous sacrifice that he gets nothing out of. Very humorous example, which I've actually, I think the John Piper I mentioned earlier used a similar example in his uh, book about Christian hedonism. Um, but this is, this is not at all a Christian, you know, a Christian perspective. I mean, ben should brush up in his Bible readings. Proverbs 5.19 says, quote, may your wife's breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Not, oh darling, I despise your rotten old boobs. And, <laughs> If you, if you think that's bad, just be glad I didn't quote the Song of Solomon. Um, Psalm 37.4 tells us to delight ourselves in the Lord, not, oh God, you're such a drag to be around, I hate going to church, I hate talking to you. So, you know, Christians don't believe that virtue is required to be a hardship with absolutely no benefit. At least not Christians who read their Bible. And it's not wrong to get joy from a good thing or even to, to hope for it or seek it. It's wrong to be so concerned about how you can benefit that it becomes your sole primary value. To become a mercenary, squeezing personal benefit from everyone and everything you can. But objectivism, applied consistently, practically requires this kind of behavior. If this life is all I have, if there is no justice or hope of future joy, why be willing to give of myself for anyone else when I have no hope of earthly reward or recompense? My time is short. This life is all I have. The primary underpinning of Rand's philosophy is essentially YOLO. Or you only live once for the older folks in the audience. Uh, and it implies a calculated attempt to take whatever you can from anyone you can take it from. I'm not saying that that's what objectivists actually say. You've heard Ben, you know, essentially say, no, I wouldn't say that. But I think objectivism applied consistently does imply and require that. Um, I think Ben mistook Jesus uh, for saying that owning possessions or building up a business is wrong uh, when he, and, uh, he cited his injunction to store up treasures in heaven. I don't get that reading from the text. Um, both Jesus and the apostles hung out with some wealthy people whom they never seemed to have criticized because their hearts were in the right place. Um, what Jesus is doing is comparing the benefit of being focused on building up possessions that ultimately aren't really yours since they can always be taken away from you and will to the benefit of being focused on eternal values. You know, Jesus doesn't reject money per se, um, but it can, despite what Ben said, become an enslaving force, and that is Jesus' concern. Um, and actually, you know, Rand characterized hedonism as being so concerned with immediate benefit that you lose all sight of the long term. Um, well, in that sense, Jesus is criticizing hedonism, if that definition of hedonism follows. Ayn Rand sort of created definitions for words that were very particular and insisted on those definitions. But, um, but if, that's, if that's what hedonism means, then Jesus is criticizing hedonism. If one, focus, uh, if one focus generates eternal value and another temporal, or long term and short term, which value is greater? If Ayn Rand had suddenly become convinced that there was a heaven, wouldn't self-interest compel her to say something very much like what Jesus said in Ben's quotation? And I think Ben sort of seemed to say, yeah, I mean, in a sense, when he said that Christian hedonism, right, if you believe that there's, a, there's an eternal reward, then Christian hedonism makes sense, right? No, I was okay. more referring to, well, I don't want to take it. That's fine. Anyway, so I misunderstood. Scratch that. 
I think that Ben also misunderstood Jesus' command not to judge. Um, I'm reminded of a response that Paul Washer gave when he was told, judge not lest you be judged. He said, twist not scripture lest you be like Satan. I don't think Ben was intentionally you know, twisting scripture here, so. but, but I, I think he's, he's taking the most popular reading of this verse. However, what's important is in the same speech, Jesus tells his followers to determine whether a person's claim to be in the faith is true by the actions they engage in. So Jesus' critique here uh, is of individuals condemning others as sinners who will inherit hell when they are in fact, when they are in fact sinners themselves. So Jesus' warning to this type of person is that they ought to be careful, lest God look at their sin and give them what they deserve as well. It's basically, he's basically saying, be humble. Um, the lesson is to always be gracious to those who've made mistakes and to never assume their ultimate fate. But remember that God has been gracious to you when he wasn't required to. Um, I think that's all for my rebuttal. So we're going to do some cross-examination, and I'm just going to kind of keep track that we kind of keep moving along. Um, and since uh, Ben started, why don't we have you, Cody, uh, start with the first question? Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I think I think I'm mic'd. I seem to be fine. Um, I'll start with this question: um, Is it immoral on objectivism? Immoral to do something purely for the benefit of someone else. Um, Cost to you, or at a loss to you? What's what, yeah. what's the impact on? Yeah, let's. Well, I guess um, I, 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 as I read Ayn Rand, she seems to argue that the only real value has to do with self-interest, and that. Um, altruism, or, or really just focusing on other person's values, just as that's the primary thing, not yeah. because you value them, but just to do it. I'd say if your primary focus is on others, uh, mm -hmm. you're practicing something called second-handedness. If you're uh, really concerned with what other people think of you, with what um, other people are up to, um, the, if others are your focus in life and not yourself, not your own, uh, your own well-being, like your own career. You know, uh, if you're focusing on others, then that's that's probably bad. If you're just doing something nice for someone and it doesn't have any positive or negative impact on you, that's kind of that's nice. That's a benevolent thing to do. It's you should generally cultivate a benevolent attitude towards other people. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay, neutral. Well, um, would you say the primary value though is self-interest and and that? Would you say that you know just kind of helping other people is sort of a neutral overall and, until it starts to benefit you? I mean, like yeah, it's it's not a you know you're, the basis for your for what's uh, what's good is what's good for you. Like you know it's not uh, like helping others is not what you're here to do. It's not a bad thing. It's not a uh, it's just not your it's not the source of what what's good. It's not okay. the root. Okay. Um, do so. Would you say then that others don't have rights that you're obligated to respect, such as rights to free choice or to life? No, other, other people like Ayn Rand developed a really robust, full theory of individual rights that you that you should respect. Yeah. 
So why do others have rights and why are we required to respect them? Okay, so uh, uh, getting into the uh, uh, theory of rights, that's a separate branch of philosophy, politics. So again, a little bit outside of the domain that we're talking about here, but um, basically the idea was that uh, uh, a brief summary uh, would be to say that because uh, you, uh, the rights are founded in the ethical principle that because you have reason and you should use reason to benefit yourself, uh, government should protect your right to do so, your right to exercise your reason, which means to apply it to uh, you know, whatever avenue you choose, like your, uh, to produce wealth, to produce uh, uh, you know, products and uh, sell them and associate with others. Uh, that's probably not a great explanation of it. <laughs> well, maybe, um, maybe the word maybe the word right is tricky. I mean, it, it, am I obligated to to you know to respect somebody's? It's another word for right because I didn't necessarily mean right in a political sense. I mean, I just sort of I guess I was sort of saying that you know I, I feel like uh, it's wrong for me to steal from someone else, for example. Yeah. Right. Would you say? I mean, is, is it? Is, it's is wrong it, for you to deprive someone else of their property. Yeah. Okay. Like, and and yeah. but why would that be? Because they created it, they're entitled to do it and uh, or to use it in whatever way they uh, they please. So that, but that's a value, right? I'm sorry. That's a value, though. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like other people having property rights is a value to you. It's a value to you to exist in a society uh, that's based on uh, uh, property rights because that's you know the most successful flourishing kind of societies that we've seen. Like uh, if you look at America, uh, especially uh, in the 19th century. It flourished for everyone at every economic level because uh, government protected individual rights uh, to uh, the largest extent uh, that any government had up until that point. Um, let me see here. Um, I, I've heard I've heard objectivists say things like, you know, dictators are, are doing something immoral because they're always having to watch their backs, something like that. So, you know. I don't know, Kim Jong-il seemed to prosper. I mean, would you say that if that is the case, I mean, was his path immoral, or what, what would make his path immoral if, if, uh, if it was? Yeah, so primarily because he violated rights on a massive scale. That's, that's it. Um, I, I don't know, would you want to be dictator of North Korea? Like, no, like no, 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 I, no, no, I wouldn't, but, but, fun. Like. <laughs> but, it, but it seems that you said, you know, he violated rights on a massive scale, but other people's rights are, are really for your benefit because you want to live in that free society. So if violating other people's rights actually benefited him, wouldn't it seem yeah. that he wasn't doing anything immoral? I don't see third world dictators as being the paragons of happiness and flour- human flourishing. Uh-huh. Like, that's not the <clears throat> ideal life. In my in, in my definition of, of what human flourishing is, uh-huh. like I don't I, I don't sit around at night wishing I could trade places with Gaddafi. Uh-huh. I, I just don't. I, I don't. I mean, it seemed to work for him. I mean, I remember the remember the story of uh, Caligula sitting at the dinner table and and then he just started laughing and then his you know all his, his guests were wondering, well, why are you laughing? And he said, oh, I just realized I could have you all killed at any moment. <laughs> well, what happened to Caligula? <laughs> well, that's true. That didn't happen to Caligula. But yeah. what happened to like, Martin? He, he, didn't, yeah. he didn't meet the best end, really. Like, that's true. He, uh, but, yeah, you know, murdered and but what happened to by Martin his Luth- most trusted. That's fair. Yeah. But, but what happened to Martin Luther King Jr., what, or the young Pakistani girl who was advocating for, for girls' rights to study? I mean, does the, does the outcome 
I mean, yeah, they had to watch their backs too. Does that mean that what they were doing is immoral? If they valued it, if it was important to them. Yeah, no, I mean, if you're striving for like something that's really, really important to you and you're doing it at some risk, that's awesome. Like, you know, uh -huh. you're, yeah, like if it's a genuine value, a life enhancing value, mm -hmm. that's great. If you're struggling, if you're striving to obtain power over others the way dictators are, then you're practicing second-handedness on a massive scale. You're violating rights on a massive scale. You're doing, you know, you're putting yourself in a position where your life is about like harming others and harming your and at great personal loss. Mm -hmm. Like dictators aren't happy. The people in the countries that are run by dictators aren't happy. No one's benefiting from that. That's not the win-win kind of situation that we see. Like whereas, you know, someone who uh, who you know really applies themselves to advocate for rational causes, uh, even at great risk. Like they're, they're heroes. They're practicing the virtue of courage. Like that's that's a great great thing. Mm -hmm. So so Kim Jong Il is immoral because he wasn't happy. <laughs> no, he was immoral because he violated rights primarily. <laughs> okay, which wouldn't that, that mean that's immoral but, because it, it's not in his self-interest to violate rights. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at, it seems like reciprocity, this idea of reciprocity is like a bit of a smokescreen. Like, you know, yeah, sure, it, it tends to be a good idea. You benefit from it in general if you do it. But it's a primary value self-interest, and it's immoral to do things only for others or, or something like that. Then isn't reciprocity only good as a means to the end of self-interest as opposed to being a value in and of itself? Well, uh I mean, nothing is entrenched as a value okay. in and of itself. Like, value isn't isn't like a little packet that's buried inside each of us, like just below our stomach and uh -huh. you know around the corner under our ribcage. Like, it's it's not a it's not in things. Uh -huh. Value describes a relationship between two things. Okay. Like, I value uh, I, like I you know value our friendship. I value mm -hmm. my, my shoes. I like these shoes. Um, like, I value my car. Uh, you know, I, I value my dog. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. Like, value describes like the relationship between a person, like uh, something capable of valuing, and an object, person, abstract principle, something mm -hmm. like that. So you say even self-interest isn't necessarily an intrinsic value, right? Because if I do have self-interest, if, if that's a, if that's a goal of mine, then then you know then I should pursue it. But if if I stopped valuing my life or my self-interest, there's moral categories no longer apply, right? Would you say that? Like is self-interest not a value? Is that what you're saying? Well, I guess I'm saying if, if I if I stopped caring about my self-interest, um, you know, would, or yeah. would, would would pretty much would it be pretty much open season? Do moral categories still apply to me? Because because values are are essentially they have to do with what you happen to value, right? I mean, that's that's a category error. Like you're uh, you know applying, you're saying you know self-interest is something you value. It's not. It's the uh, your flourishing, your well-being is the source of your values. It's the basis for value. It's okay. not. It's not like something that you uh, acquire. It's uh -huh. you. You value things for the purpose of self-interest. Okay. Last question. Oh, okay. Um, gosh, I wanted to follow up on that. Okay. Last question. So even if I said I'd just get to this, so I will. Even if I grant that 99.9% of people don't enjoy harming others, if someone got the greatest enjoyment in life from harming others, wouldn't they be a consistent objectivist if they sought this value? No, because it's not about what you enjoy or what you what uh, feels good. It's about what is good for you. There's, uh, again, I want to emphasize that difference uh, between 
you can enjoy things that are bad for you, uh, but they're still bad for you. That's what the objective in objectivism sort of stands for. Got it. Cool. Okay, Ben. Awesome. So, uh, Cody, like yeah. the objectivist values or virtues, rather, that I mentioned in my initial statement integrity, productiveness, rationality, honesty, justice, independence. Um, there's also pride that Ayn Rand <laughs> threw in there in um, uh, the, her essay, The Objectivist Ethics. Um, but I don't really like quite, I haven't wrapped my head around that one very well. So I, I'm leaving that Are out. you asking me to explain I'm, I'm doing my, I'm, doing, I'm, I'm focusing on the six. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, so out of those six, um, like, uh, do you generally think those are good things to live by? Or like, let's go one by one. Like, okay. Uh, integrity. Yeah. Productiveness. Uh, yeah. Is, is that a moral virtue? Sure, I think it depends on what you're producing, but sure. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Rationality. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, I'd say rationality. Oh, so productiveness for Rand was like producing the values that sustain your life. Is that a moral virtue for you? Um, I don't. I, I guess I feel like there's a point at which ultimate self-sacrifice is not necessarily immoral, right? So, um, but but I think overall, then yeah, you know, God gave you life, and it's good to sustain it. Cool. Uh, rationality. Yeah. Oh. Did we say that? Did we do that? I, I think we started to go to it. Yeah, I'd say rationality is definitely important. I mean, you need a to be moral able to... virtue. Moral virtue. Um, see, that's tough. Yeah, I mean, I I think rationality is wonderful, and I think everyone. Should, yeah, I think there's a certain extent to which you have to say that it's a moral virtue, but I don't, I don't want to become snobbish and say that you know people who are, are more rational are more are uh, better people necessarily. You know what yeah. I mean? Like in the sense that like I think it it, it, it sort of puts a limitation on. Um, well, I mean, some some people are limited by their abilities. I think so. I don't. I I, I wouldn't want to say that. You know, uh, go that far with it. So wait, how, um, so you think it, it can be entirely morally acceptable to act irrationally? Um, no, I guess I'm not saying that. I guess I'm just sort of saying that I, I, I think that people who, whose rational abilities are more minimal aren't necessarily immoral people, I guess is what I'm saying. Okay. But, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you have to, you have to put reason to, um, you have to use reason to, to, to make determinations about the right choices to make. And yeah, sure. Cool. Honesty? Oh, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, I didn't think we'd get much argument on that one. Uh -huh. uh, justice? Yes. Okay. Independence? Um, that one's a tricky one, too, because I, I think that ultimately humans um, aren't independent. I think we um, our, our lives are dependent on, um, on the grace of God, right? You know, at any point we could cease to exist, so I don't think that we are entirely independent. Um, but... Yeah, that, that one might be one we'd have to dive in a little bit more and sort of untangle. But sure. Well, uh, let's see. So, um, what about uh, some of the Christian traditional Christian virtues? Mercy. Mercy, yes. But you said justice was virtue. Yeah, indeed. So, uh, justice, which I defined as uh, giving people what they deserve, treating people as they deserve to be treated, is that a fair definition? Um, I would say. I mean, I guess there's, there's you know, people some well. I guess you would you would uh, you would quibble with the uh, the idea of social justice. You would say there's yeah. only one kind of justice, well, right? Social justice is just a um, euphemism for injustice. <laughs> um, I would say that um, yes, justice is something to be valued. Um, but I think that the Christian believes that ultimately well, what it was it was just the definition there. The oh, sure, sure. Treating people as they treating deserve to be treated. Deserve. Can yeah. you agree with I, that I would, real quick? To... Yeah, sure. I think okay. I, would, I would quibble with that definition. About, uh, so the definition of mercy um, would be giving uh, people who deserve something bad less than what they deserve, right? 
be about giving people who deserve something bad something good instead or something like sure. that, right? Or not, so no, you're th saying that these two things that are opposites, that are treating people as they deserve to be treated, well, treating people better than uh, they deserve to be treated, uh -huh. are both good things. Well, remember that I was, dis um, I was disagreeing with your definition of justice, right? So I think that, you know, God is just um, in that, well, here's, I guess here, here's my thing. So um, a centerpiece of, of a Christian, um, of Christian thought is that human beings, um, you know, are sinners and, you know, deserve death and that sort of thing. So, you know, I think that, you know, the fact that God is merciful and, um, you know, tells us that we should be merciful as well, remembering the fact that we got things that we didn't deserve. But I think ultimately, yes, um, you know, God will, God will right wrongs. I see, I see justice as righting wrongs more than I do um, treating people as they deserve to be treated. Yeah, well, that might um, that might kind of get into some of the uh, 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 differences between objectivism and Christianity, because uh, uh, primarily for the objectivist, uh, we're fo you know the focus is on the good as strength. Like we we regard uh, the good as inherently stronger than the the evil, and so you know it's more important for us to. Uh, focus on the good. So for us, justice uh, as a virtue is uh, primarily rewarding the good and only secondarily condemning the evil. Uh, the evil does need to be condemned, but the focus is on the good. Mm -hmm. But anyway, moving on from that point. So, um, uh, all right, so uh, philosopher, uh, famous altruist, Peter Singer. Uh, who we both probably disagree with on a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, he, he's a terrible person. If any of you guys are, you know, want to know, that's a fair summary. Um, I would just call him a consistent atheist. Uh, <laughs> I would call him a consistent altruist. Um, so, oh, so like, you know, but he does kind of generally agree with Christians on a lot of ethical issues, right? Like, well, yeah, yeah. Your your issue probably with him has more to do with uh, his sort of social justice concerns. Yeah. Well, here, uh, let me put his kind of argument to you. Mm -hmm. um, so he basically says that, uh, um, and we'll, we'll kind of put it in Christian terms: um, if you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, it should be intolerable for you for other people to suffer or die from a lack of food a lack of shelter, a lack of basic necessities in life, when you can provide those. Mm -hmm. And as such, he argues that if we were to follow the moral principles of valuing others you know, at the same level as we value ourselves, the basic core of Jesus' relational ethics, mm -hmm. love thy neighbor as thyself, if we were to follow that principle, none of us would be sitting here tonight. None of us would be taking time off of work to enjoy an evening of discussion. None of us would be wearing decent clothes, driving a car that costs more than the basic amount that needs to get from point A to point B. None of us would ever own anything beyond the basic necessities because we would be taking everything else that we have, any surplus that we have, and using it to alleviate poverty. As such, the natural the only logical extension of altruism, of, you know, if you don't want to use the word altruism, of Jesus' commandment to love thy neighbor as thyself, is pure 100% egalitarianism. Voluntary egalitarianism, granted, 
but egalitarianism nonetheless. Uh, and he gives examples of, uh, of professors who have, uh, um, who have taken this moral stand, who have said, okay, I'm not going to spend anything on myself Question. other than what I need. Okay, yeah, go on. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't want to say it's wrong. I mean, um, you know, there, there was, um, you know, a, a, rich, a rich young man who came to, you know, to Jesus and, um, you know, asked what he should do, and Jesus told him he should sell everything he has and, and follow him. And give what he has, you know, tell everything he has to, to take care of the poor. Uh, I, I certainly can't call that. Uh, I certainly couldn't call that wrong. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's. I think that you know, there's definitely a, a worthy discussion to be had um, about, you know, how you work out those details of love your neighbor as yourself. But um, yeah, that would be one I'd have to. I think think about a little bit more. Um, I, I, I certainly wouldn't reject, uh, I would certainly wouldn't call someone immoral or crazy if they decided to live in that way, and um, I wouldn't call it immoral at all. <laughs> so it would basically require that we completely change our way of life in order for us to live in accordance with these ethics. Like, the entire foundation of the American way of life, of this awesome country that has so much abundance, that my family moved to because of the wonderful lifestyle that we could attain here. That's that's wrong. That's something that we should... That, well, that's, that, not, that's not consistent with, with Jesus' commandments. No, I'm not going to say that. It, and, and I think that, you know, I, I said I didn't really want to debate, you know, uh, politics or economic theory too much, but, you know, I think there's also arguments to be made um, for the fact that, you know, because we sort of sometimes produce unnecessary things, we also, you know, provide, you know, jobs and, and you know, we actually can create more wealth. So, you know, if we tried to live in, you know, that very you know, sort of subsystem way, I think that, so I don't want to debate that point, but I think that you could certainly make an argument there that, that in a sense that, you know, um, our way of life does provide more um, affluence that we perhaps should be using better, but that, you know, but, but ultimately that the system itself is not necessarily inherently terrible. I, I, I mean, like I said, I'm not, I'm not here to debate economics, but I think there's at least an argument to be made for that. Yeah. Well, okay, last question. Um, I, I think I, I'll finish there. Okay. Cool. <laughs> All right, so um, you guys are going to give your closing statements. Um, if you have questions, um, will you kind of pass them to the center and we can grab those? Do you want to get the podium back up? Sure. Yeah, so I don't uh, have a whole lot to say. I think uh, I've made my case pretty well. Um, we uh, kind of came in here tonight, here two, okay, here two uh, different views, and I think uh, you know anything that I say now would be extraneous. So instead, I just want to invite you guys to take a 30-day challenge um, and apply the virtues that I talked about: honesty, rationality, integrity, productiveness, independence. Okay, whatever. Um, and apply those in your real life. Um, uh, yeah, like, really, really think about all of your actions in accordance with the objectivist virtues. Um, you know, try it for 30 days. See how it fits. Be selfish. 
Give it a go. Ask yourself with every relationship you have, hey, is this win-win? Am I sacrificing this person? Is this person doing stuff for me because they feel guilty? And, I mean, that's how you're going to see if this, if this stuff works. If you apply it in your real life, I can sit up here and make arguments all day, but, you know, what worked for me was when I actually tried, in particular, being honest all the, all the time, being rational, asking myself if my relationships were, were win-win. That's what made convince me, not arguments from some dude up at a podium. So give it a shot, try it out. Uh, also, um, you know, hey, if you're interested in anything I had to say, try reading some of the Ayn Rand's novels. She's got some great works of fiction. Uh, Anthem is a really good short one, uh, especially if you're younger. Um, you know, uh, Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged. Uh, also check out the podcast um, called Philosoph- uh, Philosophy in Action, with, uh, hosted by this amazing philosopher, uh, Dr. Diana Shea, who just just knocks it out of the park every single week with these great uh, applied ethical questions. Um, again, the name of the podcast is Philosophy, uh, uh, Philosophy in Action. Uh, find it on the iTunes store. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, books, Atlas Shrugged, Fountainhead, Anthem, We the Living, 30-Day Rationality Challenge, Live by the Objectivist Virtues. Give it a shot, see how it works, and uh, yeah, Thank you very much for coming out. Thank you so much, uh, Carl, like, you know, agreeing to moderate this. We really, really appreciate it. Foster's discussion. Cody, awesome job tonight, man. Uh, yeah, and thank, thank, thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. This was so much fun for me. I really appreciate it. All right. Ah, you know, I know a lot of uh, Christians at things like that, times like this, will sort of do the evangelism challenge, you know. But I, I don't, th- I don't know that I've said anything here tonight to just really have have <laughs> brought out those sort of feelings of I just need to repent right now and convert. But you know what? I think the reading idea is cool. I like that. Uh, read the Gospel of Luke if you're interested. That's a great book because I think it it actually does focus on. Jesus' social concerns, which I do think social concerns, not in the political sense necessarily, but in general, are, are the heart of uh, Christian morality, and that'd be an excellent place to start. Um, I want to thank Ben, obviously, Carl, our moderator. We, I mean, seriously, yeah. I mean, him being here is great. We, we, we needed a moderator, and he's been good. He's been awesome. Uh, I want to thank Larry for doing sound. Could have done it without Larry. Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually, I want to thank all of you guys for coming. You didn't have to come here. We appreciate the fact that you were interested enough in this topic or wanted to learn a little more or wanted to see the other guy get pummeled. And so you came. And that's awesome. Um, I just kind of, I guess maybe to wrap up, um, there's, I think, you know, some some, some major issues here. Um, you know, I, I cited the moral intuitions that morality is objective, um, that humans are inherently valuable. And in fact, that others, other human beings, are just as valuable as I am. As, as you know, those are primary, I think, moral intuitions. And um, Christianity seems to go along well with them. Um, and objectivism doesn't. I think that's that's a pretty major issue. Um, further, objectivism fails uh, when it comes to grounding. It essentially becomes something where you know. Um, 
Well, and, and I think this came up a little bit during cross-examination, but I wish we could have spent a little bit more time on it because we had a discussion, anyway, about whether or not self-interest was something that you were obligated to value and it seemed to be, or obligated to care about, and it doesn't seem like it, seemed like Rand said it wasn't. Um, gosh, I guess that's it. Thank you guys so much for coming. All right, I actually have a few more questions for Ben than Cody, so if anybody else has a Cody question and you wanna run it up to me, that would be great. Uh, so we're gonna start with you, Ben. Um, should you become paralyzed tomorrow, why should your friends remain friends with you, assuming that their friendship will impose a serious inconvenience for them? Because I'd still be a lot of fun if I was rolling around in the wheelchair. <laughs> All right, Cody. Um, if Jesus values justice and mercy, why did he have to die on a cross to satisfy either or both of these things? That's a good question. Um, well, I, I think ultimately what the cross does, is it's sort of the intersection of justice and mercy. It, it basically says that, you know, um, well, I, I think it points to the fact that death is sort of a part of the human condition. It's, it's uh, you know, sort of who we are and that, you know, it's also... Um, in, in, in one sense, the result of, um, you know, the result of sin, so that on the cross, you know, Jesus takes on our sin. We're joined to him in a, a very sort of, uh, you know, unique way where, you know, because God took on flesh and, and died on the cross, he suffers the death that is due to us. Um, and so, I mean, I, I see that as, you know, some people have debated whether or not the crucifixion actually had to happen. Um, but I'd say regardless of, of whether it had to or not, I do think it illustrates both of those principles of, of, uh, of mercy and justice coming together into one, where, where forgiveness can happen, but at the same time, it's not like God just winks at you know, sin and goes, hey, it's no big deal. <laughs> okay, Ben, uh, when are a person's interests, uh, when a person's interests and another person's interests are mutually exclusive, exclusive, what criteria determines whose interests should prevail? Um, that's a bit abstract to uh, uh, provide a direct answer to. Well, they gave a, an IE. In time of famine, who gets to eat and who has to starve? Sure. So um, we uh, generally exist in a world where, um, you know, resources are uh, abundant and the things that prevent us from uh, accessing enough resources are, um, you know, things like government policy uh, that reduce productivity. So like uh, in, say, a famine, um, it's whoever grows the food that, had, that they had or whoever, uh, you know, bought the food. That's, that's their food. That belongs to them. Your property rights still exist. So it, um, whoever owns the food gets to decide if they want to share it, or if they don't. It is a bit abstract to be able to, yeah, to really yeah. answer that one. All right, if, uh, Cody, if theistic morality is objective, then how do you reconcile with changing commandments throughout the Bible or the millions of innocent deaths at God's or his uh, mandated followers' hands? Yeah, um, that is, uh, hold on, where did it go? Uh, that, that's a fair question. Um, well, um, I, I think it has a lot to do with context, right? So, 
you know, the Old Testament, we're talking about a specific sort of context. You actually have a, a political kingdom, a theocracy, um, and you have a lot of commands that have to do with uh, ritual purity. You have commands that have to do with animal sacrifice that point to Jesus, which, you know, don't really need to, you know, doesn't really need to exist after that's been fulfilled. Um, and so I think context makes a big difference. So, you know, Jesus and John 18:36, when he's, you know, arrested and brought to Pilate, and Pilate says, well, if you're this king, how come... You know your servants aren't aren't you know you know where are your your soldiers you know where where are they how come you're here, and Jesus says well my kingdom is not of this earth if it were then my servants would fight so I think Jesus is inaugurating something different in Israel we have a theocracy, um, in Jesus we have something very different from that and you know while the theocracy I think points to true values and and uh, and to Jesus, um, you know I just think we we live in sort of a different context and um, you know there's I think a lot of continuity, but there's also a little bit of discontinuity, and I think that that's there for a reason. Uh, ben, regarding the traitor principle, how does objectivist ethics not assume that all individuals have equal access to resources? What can a starving child trade with me? Regardless, uh, my empathy drives me to sacrifice for those who are suffering. Do you believe this is immoral? Um, so, yeah, I, d I don't think that if you're, uh, if say you give money to a charity that helps starving children um, because you care about uh, practicing the virtue of justice and you don't want to see, um, uh, you know, people uh, uh, like children uh, deprived when they don't deserve to be deprived, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think that's immoral. I don't think it's moral to, immoral to give money to charity. Um, in terms of uh, um, how the trader principle, uh, actually, can you ask the first part of the question again? Regarding the trader principle, how does uh, objectivist ethics not assume that all individuals have equal access to resources? Okay, um, so yeah, uh, all individuals don't uh, produce resources equally, and you get to keep the things that you produce. Like you don't. Uh, the assumption there is that there are all these resources out there and there are just some people grabbing more than their fair share. That's not the case. It's you're keeping what you make. The resources in nature are nothing unless you apply reason. If, if you add human reason in there to transform things in nature into things we need. Uh, and then when you perform that act of transformation, um, you get to keep those things that you that you transformed. That's your property. That's the principle of property rights. Um, it's not, uh, it's not, there, there should definitely not be some kind of uh, egalitarian system where we all divide up everything equally, no matter how much we all uh, produce. Like that would be a grave injustice. So what do we do with um, the systemic things? Because we could certainly go back in history mm -hmm. and we'd probably all agree that many immoral things were done sure. for people to get the properties they've gotten, the advantages that they have. Mm -hmm. So what do we do with the systemic injustices that have given certain people opportunities to be more productive than other people? Uh, I think we have to uh, uh, be forward-looking and uh, apply a system going forward that uh, protects all individual rights equally. Uh, so, uh, but then, you know, if there are uh, specific individuals that have uh, uh, gained advantage, not through like 
generations back, uh, but in their own lives, their own misdeeds, um, then those individuals should be stripped of their property rights. So like, um, for instance, a difference might be uh, between a uh, German uh, child who uh, received a college education because uh, his grandparents got rich buying up uh, resources, uh, buying up property that was uh, forcibly taken from Jews in uh, Germany. Um, should that child uh, uh, have to give up all of his winnings or his earnings because in some way he benefited from the actions of his grandparents who were evil? No. Uh, but uh, should uh, we look at, say, uh, the uh, bankers who got bailout money uh, and made billions as a result, um, you know, in the past, like, five, six years, should, or I guess, yeah, like, seven, seven years, something like that, uh, should they be forced to give up what they had? Yeah, absolutely. The, the key point there is, did the individual that we're talking about do something wrong? Not was something wrong done in, pa- in a past life or in, you know, in history that that person is then benefiting from now. Do you have one more question for Cody? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll see if, is there anyone else that might have a question for Cody? I have a question for both of you guys. Sure. Are either of you open in your lives in the next 10, 20 years to changing your point of views and seeing the other person's point of view as having equal validity? Sure, I'll, I'll take the answer first. Do you want to repeat the question since it's... I asked him oh, the yeah, same yeah. question when I met with him beforehand, <laughs> so uh, I'd like to hear their answer now in front of the audience. So um, uh, I think uh, the question Carl asked was posed slightly differently. Uh, in terms of uh, would I be open to changing my views in general? Absolutely. I was a socialist. I was, I, I've, I've been a believer in... Uh, um, like all kinds of mystical, weird stuff. I, I've never been a Christian, but I, I've believed in chakras and weird, uh, <laughs> weird stuff like that. I've, uh, uh, I was a libertarian. Um, yeah, and, uh, contrary to what Cody said in his opening statement, libertarianism isn't objectivism; it's capitalism. Big difference. Uh, but anyway, uh, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had lots of different views in my, in my life. Uh, at one point, briefly, I was even an anarchist. Uh, um, uh, yeah, so no, uh, lots of different views, uh, always open to changing my mind. I don't think I could ever believe in something that would violate axioms of reality, which is what, uh, Christi- uh, what Christianity proposes with uh, the idea of uh, uh, creator God. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm always open to changing my mind on anything if I'm presented with evidence. Yeah, um, I'll seize on just a, a part of what you said that, you know, would, it, would I would ever be able to, willing to change my mind and see the other position as having equal validity? I don't know, if, maybe you didn't mean it that way. When I heard that, it sounded like you were saying, could both views be right? And, and if that's the case, I'd say they're mutually exclusive. So yeah. if, I were to, if I were to change my mind, it wouldn't be to say that they're both equally valid, it would be to say that Christianity is wrong and objectivism is right. Um, That's a good point. So, but um, am I open to that? I'd like to say, yeah, I'm open to following truth where it leads. Um, um, I don't I don't see it as likely at this point because I'm just not convinced. Um, but 
but yeah, I'd like to say that I'm, I'm, I'm open to that. I mean, I, I think I've also, I've had, a, you know, a genuine experience with God, which, you know, I can't put that into your minds, but it's, it's in mine. And so, um, you know, I think that makes it sort of difficult to be like sort of saying, you know, well, I'd be willing, to, be willing to be persuaded that my mom never existed. But anyway. Okay. Well, um, great job, both of you. Uh, you could definitely hear the passion that you both have. And um, as I told you both when we met beforehand, I love that you guys are friends and you continue to have dialogue with each other. I think that's awesome. Um, so in terms of uh, the evening started out uh, with um, six uh, objectivists, six undecideds, and six Christians, which is 18. Somehow numbers kind of grew, so I'm not sure how. <laughs> I, th I think we had a couple late arrivals. Yeah, so, so, so we don't really know, then we can't completely track, but the final tally was 11 objectivists, two undecided, and 10 Christians. Um, again, we don't know if anybody, if there was equal sways or not, because we, uh, we don't have the same, we didn't start with the same numbers, so. On the surface, it looks like Ben was more persuasive, and he's a very good speaker. Well, thank you, Cody. You did very well yourself. I think, I, in the end, it's, um, it was an interesting audience, which is great.